0: Day six of creation, the first man to ever exist, breathes his first breath. It's a story we all know, one that has been burned into the memory of the Western mind. It's a story of potential, of hope, of ultimate tragedy. If the gospel is the hope of the world, the fall is what made us need hope. To begin with and all of it we are told falls on the back of the most famous couple in history the father and mother of humanity adam and eve today however many have questioned not just the days of creation but also whether we can still hold to this ancient tale of a primordial pair and a lost paradise science it seems must trudge on, leaving behind the myths of old. However, not all are convinced we must abandon this sacred story. In fact, a number of scholars are now arguing that not only can we hold to both the Genesis narrative and an old earth, but also to the reality of historical Adam and Eve. Is it true? Can we really preserve both science and sacred scripture? On today's episode, we risk tackling an old earth view and the reality of our first ancestors. Because, according to many, without it, we risk losing the core message of the gospel. He that
1: believeth on him is not condemned, I he that believeth not is condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God.
0: to another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this week's episode, we have man-eating lions before the fall, battles with William Lane Craig, and a cell phone that evolves into your next laptop. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Join with me is Jonathan Lionheart. Howdy! So, John, we're in the midst of an origin series. We've just heard from Zachary Ardern and Marcus Ross. Any thoughts so far?
1: I don't know what to think. I'm getting confused, Seth. There's too many options. I think God should have made this clearer. I I would have actually preferred if Genesis was a science textbook. That would have been simpler and more explicit. Well, according to some
0: people, it is.
1: Well, I
0: You're just denying one of the views.
1: Well, maybe I wish it was a clearer science textbook.
0: Okay. He should have written down the atomic formulas and everything like that.
1: Yes, that's what I'm saying. That that is that too much to ask that God would that God would look forward thousands of years and think, you know, people in the 21st century are really going to want this.
0: So our next guest in his book, he actually says, perhaps the reason Genesis is so hard to interpret is because it's written not for one culture at one time, but for all cultures at all times, so that no matter where they are scientifically. They're able to look at it and go, yes, this can be correct, and we can interpret this in a way that's correct. I thought that was interesting.
1: Yeah, it, it is interesting that it, it's not just going to contextualize to 21st, 20th century science, but it, it's got to have a broader voice than that, because 20th and 21st science won't make sense five centuries from now. So the, the Bible's got to play the long view, not just one century.
0: It's something that he threw out there, and it's just something that I've always wrestled with since then, because- You either hear it read as A, a scientific text, or B, as a completely ancient Near Eastern text, and don't import your anachronistic assumptions at all. But this is just sort of like, no, maybe it's, maybe it's its own thing. Maybe, you know, it's like scripture, something completely unique. Yeah. So speaking of which, who is the next person in our origin series, John?
1: Well, golly, Seth, our next guest is Dr. Andrew Loke. He was a medical doctor before then pursuing a PhD at King's College London under the supervision of Oxford's Alistair McGrath. Andrew Loke then became a professor at the University of Hong Kong and is now a professor at Hong Kong Baptist University. He is often considered the next William Lane Craig. He is out there debating atheists, debating all sorts of people.
0: And debating William Lane Craig himself. They differ on this topic.
1: That's right. There is a storm brewing over the incorrect interpretation of the historical Adam. Was Adam a real figure? What does that have to do with genetics and biology? Was Adam just a symbolic figure? Eve doesn't get mentioned for some reason. And Andrew Loke and William Lane Craig are all about it.
0: Well, it, it's not because Eve is being ignored. It's because Adam in the New Testament is the person that Paul always goes back to, to tie the fall to, and then uses that to parallel it to Christ. Through one man, sin entered into the world. That sort of stuff.
1: Can't you just allow me to make, what is that thing? Like, not... Um...
0: Demeaning comments? No, no, about no, no, I'm, I'm asking... No, I'm not going to let you do no, that. No,
1: what is it? It's, uh, when you...
0: Nailing it, Don.
1: Can't you just allow me to virtue signal, Seth? I just, I have so few things that I get to do. Can you just, can you just give me this? Just let me, just let me call you sexist and not have it thrown back in my face.
0: I actually really like the point that you brought up about the storm that's brewing, because there really is a storm that's brewing. It's just one that's very different from what it used to be. Do you mind if I like take a section just to kind of talk about this?
1: Yeah, yeah, go for it. What's what's the storm? The storm. The storm.
0: Although the main topic for this conversation is going to be, does the Bible allow for an old earth? And Andrew Luke defends that in his most recent work. The main point of the work is really also about defending his view of the historical Adam and Eve, which he believes there was an historical Adam and Eve, that they were the first human couple. But his view is different from William Lane Craig's, who also believes that there was an original Adam and Eve, that they were the first humans. And their view differs from Joshua Das, who believes we all have Adam and Eve in our ancestry, that it was, or at least very well could be, quite recently. But he doesn't say that they necessarily have to be the first human being. And they all differ from young Earth creationists and blah, 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 blah. And it just keeps going on and on and on. And there's so many players in the game right now. And that makes this really interesting and fascinating because a few years ago, there was a real debate whether or not we could even accept the historical Adam and Eve and still be in line with science. And a lot of people were coming out and saying that we could not. There was a whole Christianity Today article on that, I believe, back in 2011. And that's just not true anymore. Over the past decade, the entire conversation has changed, and changed in a way that's good for people who want to hold on to the historical Adam and Eve.
1: What changed, Steph? What what caused that shift?
0: Well, what changed was there was a massive shift in our understanding of what the doctrine of Adam and Eve as our original ancestors actually entailed scientifically. Originally, there were all these presuppositions, and then a few geneticists and theologians came along and said, some of those presuppositions are not in scripture. And in fact, they can completely be dismissed. Uh, Some of the science that had not been in the conversation before began to enter into the conversation, especially when it came to genealogies. It really was a game-changing moment. What
1: changed in the science?
0: Well, I get into it more in the discussion we have afterward, which only our Patreon users can get to. So if you're interested in that, please go check that out. But basically, it's uncontroversial that you can have a couple that is in everyone on Earth's genealogy and only have lived a few thousand years ago.
1: With that, let's go and hear from Dr. Luke, The next William Lane Craig.
0: We're joined today by Dr. Andrew Loke. How are you today, Dr. Loke? I'm fine. Thank you, Seth. It's good to meet you and Jonathan today. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So just to start off, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got interested in the question of origins?
2: Well, I'm currently an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Hong Kong Baptist University. My first career was in medicine as a medical doctor for a number of years. And in my high school, junior college, I studied biology. And I also became a Christian around that time. And so you know, since then, I've been very interested in the interaction between science and religion. And one of the key issue of controversy is concerning the creation-evolution controversy. And so that's how I began to be interested in this question of origins.
1: Well, to kind of give our audience a broad outline, could you maybe give us an overview of the major competing views on how to interpret the first few chapters of Genesis?
2: Yeah, so... One view is, a very popular view, is the Young Earth Creationist view, which interprets the six days of Genesis as literal 24-hour days and regard the whole universe to have begun within that short period of time. And proponents of this view also interpret the genealogies in the Bible as a near complete record of, of our ancestors. And so we got human beings that began around a few thousand years ago. And then the human was create, created on the sixth day, right? So hours. So so on the basis of this, right, they think that the whole universe and all living things and humankind, are just everything just began around a few thousand years ago. So that's the young creationist view. There are other, however, there are other views. So for example, Hugh Ross, he would hold to, a day-age creation view which interprets each of the creation day as representing a long duration of time and also arguing that the genealogies is not a complete record of the, the ancestors so there could be gaps in between and uh, other scholars have also argued that there also could be a gap of duration between verse 1 and verse 2 of genesis 1 which uh, again uh, allows for O.H. Uh, interpretation uh, another scholar john walton argued for a functional creation view which interprets creation as functional rather than bringing into existence out of nothing. That is what he, he thinks Genesis is trying to say. Even though he himself thinks that the Bible elsewhere, say for example in Colossians, did talk about God as the first cause who brought the whole cosmos uh, out of nothing. But according to Walton, that is not what Genesis is trying to tell us. And based on his interpretation, it could have been the case that you know the universe may have existed you know, for a long period of time, billions of years right, prior to those six days, which is mentioned in Genesis one. And another interpretation is the literary framework view, which interprets Genesis 1 as a kind of poetic genre, right? Literary framework. So the details do not have to be taken literally. And there are also other types of non-literal, feminological interpretations. And those have a very long history, right? So you can find those interpretations in Philo of Alexandria, for example, in the first century, the Jewish interpreter Philo. So that is in the first century. And you also find this interpretation in some of the early church fathers such as Oregon and Augustine. So these are you know, some of the op- options out there. And it's interesting to note, so I, I want to emphasize that the phenomenological uh, interpretation, which I mentioned just now, that, that has a very long history, as I mentioned, right? You can find, find this in the early Church Fathers and, and Philo. And, and that is an important point to emphasize. Why? Right? Because their interpretation is not formulated you know, as a way to compromise right, to modern scientific findings. So it's not as if, you know, because after scientists have discovered that the universe is very old, and then they come up with their interpretation you know, to try to accommodate right, the, the Bible to Science. I mean, that that's not the case because these interpretations are, are very old, as I said, right? They, they, were, they were proposed even before the rise of modern science, even before scientists discover you know, the evidence for an ancient world. And so what that indicates is that for a very long time, biblical interpreters already realized that the text in Genesis can have alternative interpretation. And therefore, we do not have to commit ourselves right to the young earth creationist interpretation. And I think that is an important point to emphasize.
0: That's a lot of different positions. And before I jump into asking you what your particular position is, I'd like to get your take on what you think of biblical inerrancy.
2: Yes, I do hold to biblical inerrancy as a result rather than a presupposition of my theological studies. I say this that this is the result of my studies because after studying the Bible over all these years, I have discovered that there's good evidence to show that the Bible is divinely inspired. But even before that, I have also studied natural theology, and I think that uh, there's also good evidence to show that uh, the universe has a creator, uh, as demonstrated by the Kalam cosmological argument, for example, and the ideological argument. And then there's historical evidence that Jesus claimed to be God and showed himself to be God by his resurrection from the dead. So I have written books on all these topics. And so on the basis of all this evidence, I think there's good reason to show that that there is a God who created the universe and who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus believed the bible right he believed in the old testament and given that Jesus is god right his teachings would also be divine revelation. And his teachings are are found in the New Testament, uh, in the apostles whom he commissioned, and also through the apostle Paul whom he revealed himself to. And so there's good reason and evidence to think that the Old and the New Testament are divinely revealed. And having studied the Bible over all these years, I have not found any errors in the Bible. And so I I hold to the view of biblical inerrancy which simply put it, I, I hold to the view that the Bible is true in what it affirms.
1: So let's start getting to the actual different interpretations of scripture now that you've affirmed that you do believe in scripture and believe specifically in the inerrancy of scripture. What problems would you say perhaps the young earth creationist view might have? What are some of the cons of that view?
2: The problem I have with the youngest creationist view is the way they insist on their interpretation and rule out or exclude alternative interpretations based on some assumptions which fail to consider the genre, the grammar, the context, and the historical background of the ancient authors. Now, those considerations which I just mentioned, right, the genre, the grammar, context, historical background, now, these, these are important considerations if we want to interpret any text properly. Right, so these are important hermeneutical considerations principles but I find that the young creationists have neglected some of these right when they think that the text exclude other alternative interpretations so let me illustrate so for example John Collins who is not a young creationist right he's an old creationist John Collins have argued that Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 2, actually allows for a gap of duration. Now, he didn't say that the text says a gap, right? So he is not a gap theorist in that sense, but he thinks that the text does not exclude a gap. And he argued for this point based on careful consideration of the Hebrew grammar of, or discourse analysis, as he calls it. He explained all these points in his wonderful book called Reading Genesis Well. And the points which he mentioned are those points which have been neglected by young earth creationists. They have failed to see that the text does not exclude a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. But those are the considerations which uh, Collins argue for on the basis of careful analysis of the grammar. To give another example, the Young Creationists, they have often argued that based on Genesis one thirty, for example, right, which talks about animals being vegetarian, so they think that God created all animals vegetarians initially. And they think that you know, this excludes the possibility that there could be carnivores or animal death before human fall. And they think on the basis of that, that the Genesis texts exclude the possibility of an old Earth or a evolutionist views, right? Because according to old Earth creationism and also evolutionary creationist view, right, that there is already animal death, already carnivores, right, which existed way before human beings were created. However, you no, know, their interpretation of Genesis one thirty again, is problematic because it fails to consider the context and also the reception history of the text of Genesis. Right, so if you look carefully at the context, this verse, Genesis 1.30, is placed after the creation of humans, not after the creation of animals. And so some scholars have argued that you know, it's referring to the human world, right? And then if you look at the context, and also when we take into account you know, the Jewish emphasis on the function and phenomenology of the text, it's emphasizing on how things appear right to human beings. And so we can argue that Genesis one thirty. It's not referring to all the animals around the whole globe, uh, around the whole world, but only those which are within the human world, right? And in Genesis chapter 2, you see that the human world is talking about the Garden of Eden, which is a localized place situated in the middle of four rivers, right? So the Garden of Eden is not a worldwide phenomenon, but it's it's a localized place. And so we can say that what the text is trying to say is that within that localized place, all the animals are vegetarians. But this does not exclude the possibility that there could already be carnivores outside the garden or before human beings were created. And in fact, if you read other texts in the scripture, say for example, Psalm 104, which is a commentary on the creation account in Genesis, we find that the Psalmist in Psalm 104, when he talked about lions, for example, right, he said that the lions you know, seek their food from God, right? The lions eat prey, eat their prey. And so this indicates that the lions were created by God's wisdom, as the Sami say in 104, to eat meat. Lions do not eat meat after human sin, right? But they, they were already created to be eating meat. And this is also an interpretation that you find in the, the Church Fathers, right? So for example, Augustine, you know, he also says that you know, lions were created to eat meat originally. So lions did not become carnivores after human sin. So the Young Earth creationist interpretation is uh, without good basis. It ignores the contextual considerations which I mentioned earlier on. It also ignores the early reception history of the text, right? how, how the early readers understood the text. right? Say, for example, the Samis did not think that lions became carnivores after human sin. Right? That, that's not the view. But rather, lions were created to eat meat originally. And that's also how the early church fathers understood as well. I think that the Young Earth creationist interpretation is not justified and failed to consider all the factors which I mentioned earlier on. There are actually a lot of other examples, but because you are short of time, probably, so uh, I won't go through all the other points. But I think what I've said so far is uh, enough to illustrate my point.
0: That's a great start for understanding some of your problems with young earth creationism. But what positions do you actually hold to? I know you've written a recent, very excellent book on this called The Origin of Humanity and Evolution. What positions do you defend in there?
2: Okay, so I defend the view that creation is compatible with, with evolution, right? Creation is compatible with evolution. And by creation, I mean the creation account that is affirmed in, in the scripture, right? So biblical creationism, you can say. And I argue that the Bible does not require us to hold to a young earth creationist view, as I already stated. I also think that if we interpret the Bible properly, we'll find that the Bible also does not exclude evolution as well. Now, even though the Bible does not teach evolution, right? So I, I'm not saying that the Bible teaches evolution. But what my point is that the Bible does not exclude evolution. If we interpret the text properly, we'll find that the Bible does not exclude evolution. I also argue that there can be evidence for both creation and evolution. And I think this is a very important point to note. Why? Because many people today think that if we can discover evidence for intelligent design or creation, that will exclude evolution. On the other hand, many atheists think that if there is evidence for evolution, that will exclude design or creation. Now, I argue in my book that that is a false dilemma. Because there can be both. In fact, Charles Kingsley was Darwin's contemporary and friend. He already stated this hundreds of years ago. He said that our understanding of divine creation has been enhanced by Darwin's theory. It indicates a God who is so wise that he could make all things make themselves. As I often tell my students, if I can make a handphone and I can make a laptop, that shows that I'm pretty wise. But if, if I can make a handphone that can evolve into a laptop, that indicates that I'm even wiser, right? So that provides additional evidence to, show, to demonstrate my wisdom, right? So uh, I don't think our engineers nowadays, right, given their advanced technology, I don't think you know, they can design anything like a handphone that can evolve into a laptop. I don't think we have such technology yet. But you know, God is so wise that he could create a simple life and then evolve into all this amazing variety of living creatures, right, including human beings. So that is amazing. And that implies that there is evidence of design and evolution. So I think this is a very important point which many people in the creation-evolution debate have overlooked. Now, other points I defend in my book is that I defend the existence of the historical atoms specifically. It's not just creation and evolution compatible, but also specifically that Adam, his existence is compatible with evolutionary biology, in particular, evolutionary population genetics, which indicate that the current human population actually descended from a large population of, say, for example, 10,000 over individuals, right? And I argue that that is actually compatible with what the Bible says, which says that all of us have a common genealogical ancestor in the person of Adam. And I'll argue for this conclusion by proposing a possible model, right? So I'm not claiming that this is an actual model, but I'm saying that this is one possible way, right? For all we know, this is what could happen. So this is a possible way to resolve the apparent conflict between evolutionary population genetics and the historical atom. And so uh, I propose this possible model, which shows that there's actually no contradiction right, between these two views. And in this possible model, I distinguish between anatomical homo possessing the image of God We can call this God image bearers and anatomical homo, which did not possess the image of God. And on this possible model, God took a pre-existing anatomical homo or created one de novo and made him, we can call him Adam, to be the first God's image bearer. And the image of God was passed down from this individual to his descendants, such that all human beings today could have him as a common ancestor, even though they also descended from a large population of anatomical homo as indicated by population genetics. So what this means is that some descendants of Adam could have mated with this non-human anatomical homo and then this non-human anatomical homo contributed to the genetic diversity. But the descendants, right, so the descendants of Adam, when they mated with this non-human anatomical homo, Their descendants will be fully human. And that accounts for the view that all human beings today are human beings, right? We we all have the image of God. And I affirm this view on the basis of what the Bible says, right? So for example, Acts chapter 17, according to Acts, right? Paul says that from one, he made all nations of human beings. And Paul said this 2,000 years ago, right? So he was saying about something which God has already accomplished by that time. Right. So from then until now, we know that all anatomical Homo are human beings. We all have the image of God. And this is what the Bible affirms. And I argue that this affirmation is consistent with science. Because scientists have also discovered that it doesn't take very long for all human beings to have a common ancestor. Right? So it, it will just take a few thousand years for that to happen. And so my model is consistent with the Bible and is also consistent with the scientific data.
0: If we can touch on a little bit on your interpretation of Genesis with John Walton's cosmic temple interpretation, and you also say you have some affinity with C. John Collins' analogical view. Can you just briefly touch on those a little bit deeper? Why
2: you prefer that? And what's been the sort of scholarly reception of these views? Let me start by saying a bit about Walton's interpretation. So Walton, he called his interpretation the functional creationist view, or the the cosmic temple interpretation. So according to him, what Genesis chapter 1 is trying to tell us is that God set up a cosmic temple. So what that means is that you know, God rearranged the pre-existing things right, to bring about a habitat that is suitable for human beings to live in and to worship God. And that habitat includes the sky, the sun, the earth, the stars, right, the moon, which serves as functionaries right, within the world which humans live in. And it also includes you know, the plants, the animals, which God brought into that place. So as, as Watson say, it's like as if you know, God set up a house, kind of, to bring about a kind of a super habitat. And, and, then, and then God created human beings, right? And human beings worship God right, in that habitat. So that, that is a cosmic temple, right, so to speak. So what this interpretation implies is that Genesis is not trying to tell us about you know, the beginning of existence of the animals or the sun or the moon. But rather, it's a kind of setting up of a habitat with, in which you know, these things, the sun and the moon, serve as functionaries. So the sun and the moon could have existed way before that. And then in those few days, right, they you know, begin to function in the way that they are intended for human beings. Now, how that happens? Well, we can have a kind of uh, phenomenological interpretation. We can suggest that perhaps before those days... The place around the Garden of Eden, right? For example, it had been covered by thick clouds or mist or whatever, right? So in Genesis one verse two, it says that the area was formless and void, right? And darkness was over the surface. So perhaps there was some kind of thing, you know, mist or whatever, right? Or thick clouds, right? covering that place. But you know, this became sufficiently clear by dayfall such that you know, the sun you know, became obvious for creatures on Earth. So that is one way to think about it, right? So this would be a phenomenological interpretation. And as well as a functional interpretation of the text. Now, John Collins holds to a different view. John Collins think that Genesis 1 verse 1 is trying to tell us about creation X Nihilo, whereas Walton did not think so, right? As I said earlier on. So, Collins think that Genesis 1 verse 1 is you know, talking about creation X Nihilo, where God created the entire universe. And I also mentioned earlier on that Collins think that there could be a gap. Right, the text allows for a gap between verse one and verse two, so that could have been a long duration after God brought about the universe. And then you know, for some reasons, after a long duration of time, you know, the earth was formless and void. And and that is the background for the six days which follow. So verse 2 states the background for the first day, which is stated in verse 3. And according to Collins, each of the six days does not necessarily mean a 24 hour day. And Collins argued for his conclusion. Again, based on careful analysis of the text. So for example, he notes that day seven, the Sabbath day, did not have an ending, right? There's no mentioning of evening and morning. So it seems that the day seven did not end. And also, you know, we, we know that God being an all-powerful creator, you know, he doesn't get tired. And so he doesn't literally have to rest. So what this means is that, you know, the text is not actually saying that those details need to be taken literally, but rather is a kind of analogy, so Collins argue that the six days are analogous to a divine work week. So it doesn't necessarily imply that each day is exactly 24-hour day, but it could be analogous for, who knows, a long duration of time. Just as day seven, it doesn't indicate any ending, right? So day seven may be more than 24 hours, and likewise, the first six days can be more than 24 hours too. I think Collins' view is very plausible, and I think his view has been generally more widely accepted by biblical scholars compared to Walton's view. Now, of course, both views have been criticized by Young Creationists, right? So Young Creationists do not accept their view. But I don't think the Young creationist Creationists' objections succeed, actually. But there are also other scholars who have criticized Walton's view because of the way Walton talks about functional creation in contrast with material creation, right? Which uh, a lot of scholars think that that is a false dichotomy. It doesn't make good sense. Now, in my book, I try to modify Walton's view a bit. right? I say that uh, his, his view It's also defensible, in my view, if we modify the way he expressed his view a bit, and then that will also answer the objections and resolve the problem. And so on on my view, I think that both Wharton's view and Collins' view both are defensible, even though Collins' view has been more widely accepted by biblical scholars. But nevertheless, I I think both are defensible and both are plausible alternative to the young creationist view. So
0: many listeners hearing this interpretation might think that Old Earth interpretations like these seem to allow for means someone probably accepts evolution. Is that true or is that just a myth?
2: Holding on to an old earth interpretation does not necessarily entail holding on to evolution. Now, actually, we also need to clarify that what I have mentioned just now, right? The views of Walton and Collins. Now, they are also not necessarily claiming that the Bible says that the earth is very old. What they are actually arguing is that the Bible does not exclude an old view, right? The Bible does not exclude that the world is very old. Now, here, I think it's important for me to emphasize a very important distinction between interpreting the text and formulating a possible model to show that the text does not contradict science, right? So these are two different tasks. So in my book, I explain the task of interpretation as task A, and the formulation of a possible model, I say that that's task C. And I think we have to be very careful to distinguish these two tasks, because I find that many young creationists, they fail to see the distinction. Uh, So they they think that people like Collins or others, they are trying to use modern science to interpret the Bible. Well, I don't think that is what they are doing. As I said earlier on, I think both Walton and Collins, they argue for their view based on careful hermeneutical considerations. So they are doing task A. They are not using modern science to interpret the Bible. Rather, they are interpreting the Bible properly according to genre, context, grammar, etc. And they argue that okay, so this is what the text says, and the text is not trying to tell us that the earth is very young. But I also don't think that you no, know, they are insisting that the text is telling us that the earth world is very old, right? So what they are saying is that the text just doesn't tell us, right? So the text is not saying that the earth is young or old, and therefore, having done task A, right, having interpreted the text properly as Collins and Walton have done, we then go on to think about whether is this compatible with science or not. And I think they will say and. This is also what I would say is that the text does not exclude an old-earth view, the view that the world is very old. And also, it doesn't exclude evolution as well. In summary, we are not committed, right, to accepting evolution. But the important point here is that what they will say is that if we interpret the text properly, it does not exclude an overview and it does not exclude evolution.
1: There is a whole debate going on within the Christian and science community about the historical Adam. Was there an actual literal historical figure named Adam? What would that mean? How does that relate to DNA and biology and all of these types of questions? Could you maybe give us a quick outline of the different views that are out there right now and who the major figures who hold them?
2: Okay, so some people deny that there's a historical item, right? But many Christians would affirm that there is a historical item. And among those who affirm that there is a historical item, you know, some things that Adam might not be the first human being. For example, Josh Swamidas. now he defends a variety of views in his book, but one of the views that he argued he thinks that there's a possibility that Adam may not be the very first human being, right? So there could be human beings who already existed before Adam, but Adam is the first uh, important representative for all of us today. So some may not think that Adam is necessarily the first human being, but others, such as myself and Dr. William Lynn Craig, uh, we would argue that Adam is the first human being. And so the Homo that existed before Adam, they are not actual human beings, even though they may be anatomical Homo. So on Dr. Craig's view, there are Homo erectus, for example, who existed before Adam, but those are not human beings. And among those who affirm that Adam is the first human being, there's also different views about how long ago did Adam lived. So for Dr. Craig, for example, right, he would uh, say that. Adam lived a very long time ago, uh, say, for example, around 700,000 years ago. Right? So he's a Homo heidelbergensis. Whereas other scholars who affirm from a historical Adam, you know, some of them have hold to a more recent Adam view. And among the more recent Adam view, there's also a, a range of perspectives. So some think that Adam probably lived you know, during the Neolithic era. So based on their interpretation of Genesis 4, for example, they think that Cain, Abel, and Seth, right? So Cain and Abel. So those those people are like Neolithic farmers. And so they think that Adam lived in the Neolithic era as well. So you know, around 10,000 years or within that period. But there are other scholars uh, such as Hill Ross who think that uh, Adam will have lived earlier than that, right? So around 50,000 years ago. So these are a range of views. And for myself, well, I think that Dr. Craig's view is a possibility. I'm not excluding that. However, I also think that Adam could have lived more recently as well. So, I'm open to all these different possibilities and I don't think that the biblical or the scientific data actually exclude these various possibilities. Now, however, I do disagree with the view which, you know, Defended that Adam is not the first human being, right? So I don't agree with that. I think Dr. Craig is right to say that Adam is the first human being. However, Adam he could have lived, who knows, right? It could be as old as uh, Dr. Craig says, or it could be more recent. Now, Dr. Craig disagrees with my view. Uh, he he thinks he thinks that Adam would have lived much earlier than that. And the reason why Dr. Craig thinks so is because he, he thinks that there's evidence that human beings around those Homo around the time of, say, the, the Homo Habilis, right? They, they already illustrated capacities for abstract thinking, symbolic behavior. And Dr. Craig thinks that those conditions would be sufficient to indicate that you know, they are human beings. However, I think the main problem with Dr. Craig's analysis is that he neglected the importance of considering religiosity and spirituality when we think about human nature. And these points about spirituality and religiosity are important because when we read the biblical text, the Bible tells us that human beings are created in the image of God. And what that means is that humans are aware of their responsibility towards God, the creator. So God created Adam and commissioned him to subdue the world. Right, so humans are supposed to play their functional role of representing God to take care of the world. So given that this is what the Bible says, uh, you no, know, we will need to look for, for evidence. So, so, is there any evidence that uh, Homo heidelbergensis, right, they have this capacity to be aware of a creator? That some of them actually practice worship of gods or something like that? And there is not yet such evidence, right? So, archaeologists, scientists have not discovered such evidence yet. But Dr. Craig, you no, know, he he just simply assumed that creatures who are able to have abstract thinking, etc., they would also be God's image bearers and also have the capacity to know about God. But this. Assumption is not proven. You cannot just simply assume that you know, those creatures who are able to have those abstract thinking, etc., would also be able to think about God. Now, this is an unproven assumption. And moreover, when we look at the scientific record, we find that there is clear evidence of religiosity. For example, say around fifty thousand years ago, but there is no such clear evidence before that. So this shows that religiosity and the evidence for religiosity and the evidence for abstract thinking they do not go together. There is evidence of abstract thinking. Etc. Much longer before, as Doctor Craig argue, but then the evidence for religiosity only comes much later. So we cannot simply assume that those creatures who are able to have abstract thinking would also be able to worship God. That is an unproven assumption, and it seems to be contradicted by the scientific evidence at present. So I don't think Dr. Craig's objections to my view hold. And I, I think that you know, he has failed to consider some important points about religiosity and spirituality. And I also want to emphasize that the spirituality I'm talking about right, is the capacity to be aware of a creator god. So it's not just simply burying the date or you know, things like that, right? Which we know that the Neanderthals, for example, right, there's evidence that they, they bury the date. But that also doesn't necessarily entail an awareness of a Creator God, which is what the biblical text actually talks about. So, when did people start to become aware of a Creator God? Well, the current evidence we have suggests that is probably a few thousand years ago. However, the evidence that we have right now is not complete, so there's still a lot of things that we don't know about people who lived long time ago. So, it may well be the case that. The people are aware of God and worship a creator God way before that, right? Way before a few thousand years ago. And that's the reason why I think we should be open to various possibilities. And that's the real, also the reason why I'm open to both Neolithic Adam view and also Hill Ross view, which suggests that For all we know, it could be that Adam lived 50,000 years ago. I don't rule out these possibilities, right? Because the record of evidence we have is incomplete, right? So who knows? You may discover such evidence of people worshipping God 50,000 years ago. I mean, that that is also possible. So I'm open to various possibilities. And I think that is how we should approach this topic. Because what I find problematic in many discussions is that people tend to exclude certain possibilities based on incomplete evidence and based on unjustified assumptions, right? Like uh, what Dr. Craig holds. I think a better view and more careful view is to be open to possibilities, so that's the reason why I hold the view I hold. Do you find
0: having these sorts of conversations about apologetics and historical Adam and Eve different in a Western context than you do in Hong Kong?
2: Well, I don't think Hong Kong is that different from a Western context. And one important reason is because Hong Kong, for many years, right, it was a British colony. Now, of course, since 1997, it has been taken back by China. But the British system is still very much around, especially in the education. So people in Hong Kong study Western science just in a very similar way as how people would study science right, in Oxford or Cambridge, for example. And so the study of science is not that much different compared to the West in Hong Kong. But of course, there's also a lot of interesting discussions among Christians, right, about creation and evolution. And I found my views to be very, the view that I've discussed in my book, I found these views to be very helpful for scientists, for students, for Christians to think about creation and evolution. Because using my views, I show people that you can believe the Bible when we interpret it properly, right? You can believe the Bible and you can also believe in mainstream science, evolution, you know, and there's no conflict between these two, right? You can believe in both. And this helps a lot of people, right, to resolve the tension or the apparent contradictions which they think exists. And this is a very important for removing an obstacle for people to come to embrace the Christian faith. And so some of my students, after they took my classes, for example, right, they were atheists, but after taking my classes, you know, they they became Christians. So I'm very thankful and grateful for that. For a lot of
0: audience members, this idea that you can hold to an old earth and still be a biblical inerrantist might be something completely new. What resources would you recommend for people who want to explore this topic deeper?
2: The first resource I would recommend is the book by John Collins, the book I mentioned earlier on, Reading Genesis Well, I think it's an excellent book which will help the listeners, right, to interpret Genesis well. And Other resources, uh, well, I'll recommend a YouTube discussion which I had with Dr. William Craig and Richard Everbeck and Josh Somidas during the ETS conference last year. So we had a very interesting discussion on the issues covered in my book, and I also responded to Dr. Craig's objections to my view. So I would encourage the listeners to check out that interaction we have is available on YouTube on my channel. And I also encourage the listeners to check out my website on academia.edu where you can find the written text of my response to Dr. Quick. You also find many other resources which will be helpful for understanding science and religion in general, including the evidence for the existence of God, natural theology, the cosmological argument, theological argument, and also the historical arguments for the registration of Jesus. So you can find out all these important resources on my website, academia.edu.
1: Great. What's the next subject you'd like to write about? What is next on the docket for you?
2: I'm currently writing a book on natural theology. So in this book I will bring together the important conclusions of my previous book to synthesize them together to provide comprehensive and systematic treatment of the topic of natural theology. And also I would uh, also reply to the objections from people like Karl Barth, right, who has mentioned a lot of theological objections to natural theology. So in this next project I'm, I'm going to respond to the objections from people like him and the postmodernists, the skeptics, atheists and other people. So this will be my next project.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Luck. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Seth and Jonathan. It's been a pleasure speaking to you both, and I wish you all well in your future
0: work. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Spiritually Incorrect. This is the third part of our origin series. Part one was with Marcus Ross on Young Earth Creationism, and part two was on evolution and Christianity with Zachary Ardern. Our fourth and final part will be with Stephen Meyer upon Intelligent Design. Also be sure to check out our Patreon. We have an exclusive discussion between Jonathan and I afterward, both for this episode and for every episode within our origin series. Those perks are just one of the many that we have. You can suggest a topic, interview John and I, and even come on the podcast to talk to our guests. We even have unreleased episodes that will never be heard except by you, our Patreon subscribers, such as one just released on the Supreme Court and abortion. All this and many, many other bonuses can be found at our website, spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com. Sound effects from zatsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.